This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Yo, what is going down, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the spice, baby! Uh, yeah, let's get on that spice goodness. What up? I'm Austin Hayden. I'm joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We've got Raymond. Uh, I was trying to think of a Dune thing to say, but how's it going, everybody? <laughs> Dune! Yeah, okay. And now we got and we got Ryan. What up, film fans? And this week we're going to be talking about the film that everybody's talking about, the recently released on, what is it, HBO Max and also theatrical Dune, right? Now, elsewhere in the world it hasn't been released yet, um, so some places you still got a couple weeks left, but it's coming. I'm sure you'll see it or you'll figure out a way to see it at some point. Uh, so yes, this is definitely going to be very spoiler-y, so if you don't want to be spoiled, make sure you put this episode on pause and come back and uh, check it out after you've seen the film. But if you don't care, we're talking about the released, recently released film, Dune, directed by Denny Villeneuve, starring fucking everybody. So we've got Timothy Chalamet, we've got Josh Brolin, we've got Oscar Isaac, we've got Rebecca Ferguson, we've got Stellan Skarsgård, we've got Dave Bautista, Charlotte Rampling, Jason Momoa, Javier Bardem, and apparently Zendaya's in this film as well, I guess. I mean, she's in there for at least a minute and a half, but she's all over the posters, so I guess we can talk about what the deal is with that, since I know a lot of people have been confused about that, but... Here is the elevator pitch for Dune. Dune is the long-awaited blockbuster adaptation of Frank Herbert's beloved novel. It's set far in the future, where we're thrown smack dab in the middle of a cosmic battle over the precious spice resource that is only I found like on the planet. I feel like this is going to be a long elevator ride. <laughs> <laughs> the planet Arrakis, and we follow Paul and his family as they are entrusted with governing Arrakis, the domestic resource, and the locals. That is the elevator pitch because we're not going to get too much into it more because we're going to start peeling <laughs> okay. peeling things back as we I spoke uh, get too on. Soon. Yeah, that's right. Uh, as we get on the other side of things here, so first things first, let's talk about first impressions. I don't know if you've seen this film now multiple times, but we'll go around and we'll do some first impressions. I do just want to say though, before we do that, we are live. So if you are on YouTube and you're listening right now, the chat is live. Please send us your comments, your fan theories, your questions. Um, what do you think about maybe are, are the film's influences? Do you think it's a good adaptation compared to the David Lynch film from 84, etc., etc.? Comment down below. And then of course, if you're not listening live, of course you can email us, you can call us, all that good stuff. You know the deal. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter at smtm underscore pod. That's smtm underscore pod. All right, first impressions. Let's start with Raymond. What are you thinking about this uh, film, brother? Sure. Uh, I haven't read the book. Um, I've seen the David Lynch movie, which I think is a good bit of fun. Um, That's I, a good way I to put it. I think that uh, Denny Villeneuve is a fine filmmaker, and I think he's assembled a wonderful cast. I've got no complaints about this movie from a technical standpoint. I think it's really, really well made, but I'm just not all that invested in the characters or the universe. And I think if I read the book, I would probably dig it a bit more. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's kind of my two cents. It doesn't really do it yeah. for me, but um, I'm I'm glad that I know this was like a dream project of his. So I'm I'm mm. glad he's he's gonna get to make the uh, the second part of it. And uh, it seems like from from uh, everything I've heard online and, and seen people talking about that it 
apparently is a, a fairly faithful adaptation and that the uh, the Dune heads are out there are, are really happy with uh, how it was brought to screen. So um, I don't know if you guys have read the book, maybe you'll uh, you'll be able to help connect some of the dots for me. Well, this is one of those films where there's been a lot of anticipation. They've tried to get the big blockbuster version of this off the ground for quite a few years now. Is this is this something that you were waiting for? Were you excited about it? Were you invested in the production? Or did you kind of like, eh, take no, it or leave it? I haven't, I haven't watched his Blade Runner sequel either because I'm not a huge Blade Runner fan. And okay. this one, quite, I mean, quite sincerely, if and this is not to denigrate the film in any way, if we weren't covering it on the podcast, I probably wouldn't have gotten around to it for years maybe just interesting yeah you know, i'm sure eventually i would do like a denny villeneuve marathon at some point to watch all the movies of his that i haven't seen and i'm sure i would see this and blade runner then but it it wasn't really on my radar but like i said different strokes for different folks well maybe if we start peeling back some of the themes because there are lots of ecological political economic etc that might kind of open us up and that's, to some interesting uh, that's why stuff. i think i yeah. would i would probably dig the book a lot because it's a you know yeah. uh, i'm I, i'm on board with what it's doing subtextually but as as far as like oh uh, yeah what's uh, what what's going to happen to house atreides i'm not too terribly concerned I'm going to do the annoying thing, and I'm going to ask you, if you were to give this out of five stars, what do you give it? Um, I think it's a it's a fine adaptation, and it's a for me, it's just a totally average movie. It's very, very well made, but I'm like I said, I'm not that invested in it. So I'd say right down the middle of the road, two, two and a half out of five. Oh, shit. Ryan, you're up. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that was not that was not that wasn't me being mean about it. Two no, and a half I know. is a, uh, an average movie. Okay, Ryan. So I I wanted to see. I was so looking forward to this movie, and I wanted to love it so bad. Oh, all right, no. and boy did I not love it. Oh at no, all, really? Um, I mean, my basic review is essentially like it. Okay, it looked cool for parts of it. It sounded cool for lots of it. I would say the best part is the sound design, I would say. Um, but like in terms of uh, uh, story, yeah, I don't give a shit about anything that's happening. It's to, as a, as a loyal non-book reader, it was complete gibberish. <laughs> to me. It was complete gibberish to me in parts of it. And, and, uh, uh, and yeah, I don't care. I'm not invested in the characters. I thought the, um, the okay. costumes for whatever reason bugged me. Cause I, I was like, all right, this movie costs like a hundred, $300 million. And to me, it just looks like it just, I don't know, draped a sheet over a bunch of people in the desert. Uh, I wasn't impressed by that. The sandworms didn't really impress me. There's like literally what 60 seconds of sandworms in this two and a half hour long movie. So at least as a at least I was hoping to get sandworms. You know, there's way more sandworms Listen, if you in the want David Lynch movie. Go see Tremors, okay? The fucking well, I classic. Have. I've seen all the Tremors. I love Tremors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. But, yeah, you uh, put that yeah. baseball on a tee for Ryan there, Austin. <laughs> he, yeah. he has the most Tremors vibe of anyone I know. Oh, yeah. I mean, t- Tremors uh, way above Listen. Dune in terms of how much I like it. Um, so, yeah, I was just disappointed in the whole thing. And, and, uh, and of course, the, the, the elephant in the room, the, something that I, in my opinion, should be in the United States Constitution that should be made illegal is to you – you cannot make – half of a movie and charge me a full price for it. I want half of my IMAX, IMAX money back tonight. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, I hate people making half of a movie and, or half of a story and then saying, uh, Oh, come back next year or in four years when we green light this movie and end up making it like, fuck that. Um, so that I have a big problem with that. It's not, a, it, it, it's not standalone and, he, and it's not even like, 
like kind of halfway like uh, cliffhangery. It's just kind of like literally half a story. Like they don't fucking uh, wrap up anything. I I will uh, say uh, in in the film's defense, I think. <sighs> I think there are movies that succeed on those terms, like Lord of the Rings shot as one production, released as three movies, but I do think that they could have done a better job with this one, like communicating that through the marketing that this is Dune part one, rather than like you go sit down, turn it on, or you sit down, the lights go down in the theater, and then it says Dune, and then it's like part one. It just feels, it felt a little bit like a prank. I didn't know that this was, uh, this was supposed to be the first oh. of two halves. I mean, it was a total bait and switch. They marketed it like, this is Dune. And no, it is part of Dune, right? And and I, I think Lord of the Rings, yeah, kind of what you said, it was marketed as, here's going to be three years of Lord of the Rings, and, and you get every book. And even in that thing that was written, you know, forever ago by Tolkien, it at least... I have the semblance of something was accomplished at the end of each one that made me go, okay, that was, the, you know, the, they, they accomplished one, one mission or one step, but we got more stuff to do in the next ones. This is just like, well, uh, the same story. Nothing is... Well, but, but anyway, like, long story short, I really didn't like this movie, um, although I did think some parts of it were pretty cool to look at. Give him the five-star really test yeah, to get yeah, the chat off five, my back, Austin. Out of five, what do you think? <laughs> out of five, I give it... Um, I give it one and a half. Whoa! Uh, Damn. Okay, listen. I this movie didn't blow me away, but I'm gonna have to all of a sudden act like I love this movie more because I think that the hate in this room, this is salty as fuck right now. Listen, we can't have a bash. No hatred from me. I'm sorry. I think I'm being painted with a broad brush here. No hatred whatsoever for the film. It's just not my cup of tea. I wish that I saw this film in theaters because I think it would be amazing on like some big IMAX screen and, and stuff like that. So I think I might go see it again at some point. Um, I tried to get tickets to it for the Sydney Film Fest, but it sold out in like two seconds. But I'll definitely see it again on the big screen, even though, you know, it's nice in a little home home studio back there. But um, it's not the same, right? And this feels like one of those films that it just is made for the cinematic experience. Like to me, this is... This is quintessential blockbuster cinematic experience. The cinematography is huge and big, and I love Arrival, and I had a lot of like flashbacks to just the scene when that spaceship is hovering out over that field, and a lot of the stuff even inside when they're getting brought up to it and the forklift, you know, or not the forklift, but the little elevator lift thing. Yeah. Um, and a lot of, you can definitely see Villeneuve's style, his fingerprints all over this. And, and I was thinking a lot about just the grandiosity of this. And I wish I would have seen it there. So that's one thing for sure that I think about this film that I think is a good thing. Because we don't have a lot of those types of big cinematic experiences. We don't get excited about, fuck, let's go to the movies and go to the cinema, right? Now it's just like consume something from your laptop or on your iPhone or something like that. And pity the person who had to watch Dune on their iPhone. Like, I get it. You can do it. Um, there was that meme, that funny meme that's going around um, about, like, you know, I watched it like Villeneuve intended on my iPhone. And, um, and it, yeah, you can't. you got to watch this on something big where you're, the walls are shaking and your head is shaking. I think the, um, the color palette is beautiful. I think the cinematography is amazing. I think the special effects are fantastic. I love the uh, dragonfly fucking helicopter things. I thought that was really fun. Those were cool. The technology was really interesting, even though I know it's a stripped-back technology, and there are reasons for this that are rooted in the novel. Um, I really like the kind of post-apocalyptic kind of vibe, very sort of Mad Maxi in a deserted world. Some people are comparing it to A New Hope. That's fine. I kept thinking of Tarkovsky um, with with a lot of things, like Stalker uh, and 
and some of the other kind of like really wide shots that you get in some of Tarkovsky's work. A little bit of Solaris as well, I guess. But um, I thought the pacing was interesting, and there's some really interesting debates about is it slow or is it supposed to be like prestige sci-fi? And I think there's a really interesting debate there. The acting performances were all good. I know some people kind of joke around about the they are brutal line by Josh Brolin, which was pretty laugh out loud, um, kind of funny. Um, I think the assembled cast is amazing. I don't mind that it's only a partial story. I like an How ellip- dare you? I like an ellipsis. I'm okay with that. It, it Actually, at one point, I even turned to my girl when we were watching. I was like, oh, it kind of reminds me of the first Lord of the Rings, you know, where it's like you just end with them walking. And I was kind of like, oh, okay, this is totally just a setup, and it just stops you right here. I was okay with that. Um, I actually, though, will say that I don't love the movie. Um, Shit, Austin, we needed you to love the movie for this podcast. But I do think think this. I think it's such an interesting film. I think there's so many things to discuss. And I think it took a fucking home run swing. And I just think that maybe it was caught at the warning tracks. That's the metaphor. I could not agree more, Austin. Uh, I'd like to amend my thing a little bit because while I did trash the movie a lot, I mean, I feel bad for trash the movie because it is an ambitious big movie with a cool auteur director who I love. And a lot of people in the chat are giving a shit for talking shit about him because I, because they clearly, and Austin, did you say you had read the book or not? Have you read the book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have, okay, I'm so glad you read the book because I wish I had read the book because I do think this movie is for people who have read the fucking book. Like, I think that it works the best. All the people that I know who have read it who saw it are fucking in love with this movie. And all the people who haven't read it, like me, are kind of like either, ah, yeah, that was cool, or like me, didn't like it. So I do think that it, you get a lot more into the this film if you or out of it if you have read that three bazillion page fucking uh series you know yeah, so. yeah. I've, I've really, not read all i've not read all of them really digging with both hands now I know, I know i will say this and this is the last thing we'll say um real quick and then we'll start peeling things apart is i do think that um the film doesn't it doesn't present or express the ecological and political economic themes that the book uh, places like front and center and also the sort of religious mystic the the sufi elements in particular which is a smaller sect of islam it is much less um focused on but it's there obviously like with names and certain things that i think are so replete throughout the novel and throughout the series that i think it's a little bit of a shame that it's missing and i'm just going to say this this is why i was thinking of tarkovsky a lot is the mysticism is there but because I think Villeneuve was trying to straddle of such a difficult balance between blockbuster and people's expectations of how to do a space opera like Star Wars and fucking Alien and uh, everything else that comes along in that, that, that subgenre. And then at the same time trying to do like a prestige, methodical, meditative, in my mind, very Tarkovsky-esque type of exploration of mysticism and religion. I think that's a very difficult balance to try to find. And I feel like because he kind of Um, put his film squarely in the middle it's not enough of one to be perfectly successful in my mind but I can totally get why people totally gravitate towards it because it's something that's very different than what we're typically given in sci-fi and also in prestige films and I think that's one thing that a lot of people will be able to unite around but of course uh, we gotta give a shout out we gotta pay the bills so let's run a a quick ad here and then we'll start peeling things apart and and we can really start to piss the fans off (laughs) All right, but before we continue we gotta 
to give a shout out to our sponsor, Storyblocks. Storyblocks is the complete stock solution, providing an unlimited library of over 1 million royalty-free, high-quality video, audio, and images through cost-effective subscription plans. Their extensive library is royalty-free and demand-driven. What does that mean, Austin? Well, this is what it means, that they're constantly optimizing and adding to their 4K and HD footage, their After Effects stuff, their Premiere Pro templates, their music, images, SFX, etc, etc, etc. And remember, the assets are completely royalty-free, so you can use them both for commercial and personal use. So if you're a podcaster, if you're a short filmmaker, if you're making your first feature, if you're doing commercials, if you're doing YouTube videos, Insta videos, TikTok, whatever, if you need those extra spicy content elements, then you got to head over to storyblocks.com slash wisecrack, and you can learn all about what they've got to offer. That's storyblocks.com slash wisecrack, and you can learn all about the goodies. And of course, you can click the link down in the show notes too, if you would prefer. All right, back to the show. All right, let's do this. Let's just run headlong into the controversy that we've already stirred in the chat and that is dividing some people. All right, Let's get outside. I, want, I of... want to address an elephant in the room first. Okay, elephant. Ryan has the most beautiful, spicy blue eyes right now. It looks. It, it looks <laughs> like sniffing, sniffing that spice. It, it looks like he just got back in from uh, the desert or whatever. How was it, Man. Ryan? Me and Sendaya, I think, would be a good couple. I agree with you, Raymond. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Okay, let's do this. Let's say the film is got like you know pretty pretty widespread acclaim. Um, There are some people who just really fucking love this film, and other people who it didn't mm -hmm. quite land for. Let's let's play devil's advocate. Well, I mean, it's not devil's advocate, but let's look at the other side. Why is this film getting so much love? Why do people? Uh, why are they so invested in the value, the beauty, the success um, of this film? What are people saying, and do you get that? Can we see from from the perspective that is outside of our perspective and say, okay, I get why they love it so much? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is this is like you said, it's big Hollywood filmmaking on a grand scale um, in a vernacular that we don't often see. Most movies of this budget are superhero flicks and stuff like that. Um, and even though this is based on previous IP, it still it feels like a different flavor in, in, in the pop culture environment, which is why I want to reiterate, I'm very, very happy it's doing well because that will probably open the door not only for sequels to this, but more movies of its ilk and, uh, you know, maybe yeah. embolden studios to, to, like you said, Austin, take bigger swings uh, rather than relying on not just IP, because once again, I, I know that this is an established IP, but it's still a weird movie. It's still yeah. a weird bet, you know? It's this this weird political intergalactic thing with sandworms, and maybe it doesn't have enough sandworms for some of us, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, movies movies like this, uh, you know, when when the first Star Wars came out and was a big hit, it launched a, a ton of imitators, some good, some bad, and uh, hopefully the success of this film will uh, will maybe do the same. And I also don't think it hurts to have such a, a huge cast of of recognizable stars. There aren't a lot of uh, big star vehicles anymore. I I always think of like the Marvel movies as being like Iron Man is is the movie mm. star in those movies, or Captain America is a movie star, but like Chris Evans may not necessarily be able to open a movie like Gifted based on 
the, mm. the affection folks have for Captain America. Whereas this one, other than fans of the book, uh, I don't think a lot of folks are coming into this thinking like, oh, you know, I really, really love these characters or this IP. You know, a lot of them are archetypes and uh, they're just brought to life by really great, compelling actors that have uh, clearly endeared themselves to audiences. So I, I can see why it's doing well. I, I would, I would uh, take your question and divide them up into two, the two different kinds of people who love this movie. And that's okay. the people who have read the book, that love the movie, and the people who haven't read the book. And I think that they like it for different reasons. I think that people who... Th- this story, uh, Dune, you know, was famously one of those unfilmable novels yeah. for many years, right? Oh, how would you possibly make this? Everyone loves this story, but and it's so cinematic, but it's so dense. How would you ever make yeah. it into a into a movie? And uh, the answer to that apparently is you don't. You make a fucking miniseries and you call it five movies or whatever the fuck is about to happen. Uh, so, but I think that a lot of people are just really getting off on the fact that wow, somebody actually attempted and made a really awesome, decent. You know, a passing Dune movie that is making a lot of money and people are liking and has big stars, Mm. you know. So I think that just the fact that it came out and is, you know, not as shitty as the David Lynch movie, which I know you taught you praised at the beginning of this. I think the David Lynch movie sucks even worse than this movie. I would give that that a quarter of one star. All right. Uh, uh, Because it's literally incomprehensible and you can't follow it. And David Lynch has disowned it. Anyway. so I think that, that people are happy that they got this big movie and and they probably would admit that it's not a perfect adaptation, but they think that it's got cool stuff going on, which it does. Like I said, it's got cool visual cinematic stuff going on for sure. And then the people who don't, haven't read the book, like my brother loved this movie and he said he made our whole family promise to go see it in IMAX as soon as possible. And I think he liked it because of, you know, the cool way it was shot. I, I, I He certainly wasn't like, oh, I loved it because of all the politics and getting into the motivations of the characters. I think he, because that doesn't really come across on the first viewing of the film for yeah. somebody who hasn't read the book and knows these people. It really doesn't. And so I, I think that it's 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 very much like, it's washing over him just as, wow, mm. this is a cool universe and world that I'm being exposed to and in a different big way, in a you know, uh, uh, big cinematic way. So yeah. I think that those are the two conversations we're having. And somebody in chat here said something that I think was very pertinent. They said, uh, I feel like, Mar- Marianne said, I feel like this is a futuristic Pocahontas, right? Which... Having seen the first movie, I guess I can kind of see how this is setting up to be kind of a Pocahontas story. So I think that's another reason mm-hmm. that, that it like it, it resonates with people very much in the same way that like Avatar did. It has these very broad universal themes, right? Of you know capitalism, colonialism, expo- exploitation yeah. of cultures, you know uh, love, uh, and then psychedelia from the seventies and stuff. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. magic. It's like it's like all these things that you know they don't really even hammer down in uh, in the specific accessible ways, but it's just. The the world is cool, you know, and so I think that that's another general reason why people uh, gravitate towards this story. It's just the big, broad themes. So there's a a lot there's a lot to say about those themes too, right? With the extractivist economy, with the ecosystem. So Frank Herbert, who wrote the novel, he spent like five years actually um, studying environmental and ecological processes, so that he could develop this really complex ecosystem on the planet Dune um, to that 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 then allows it to produce spice, right? Which then is um, extracted for the purpose of kind of like. Uh, human, global, political, economic imperialism, right? So there's a lot of um, 
political themes and social themes and economic themes that are really rich in both the novel and in the adaptation. And so when you throw all those things up into a single piece, it allows people to kind of gravitate to the things that are important to them, right? And so you can see like, okay, so this is uh, a beautiful cinematic space story, but that also has really important themes that we can gravitate to, even if they're kind of just subtly played. So we can talk a little bit about that, but I do want to ask this. So at one point, so my girl is in the biz as well, and she kind of turned to me at one point and she said, I wonder if this would have been better as a series. And Ryan, you just said that this is a mini series disguised as like a movie, right? And so so I guess this is something yeah. that we can think about. Like, would this have been – because for her, she felt that it was a little – we were an hour in before she started really caring about the story, about the world, and then having any sort of concern about the characters, right? And so for her, she was like, I wonder if this would have been better if it were something like Game of Thrones where you have – an eight-part miniseries that allows you to kind of like really round out all of these different houses and all of these different things in the world, and then you can have the ecosystem be more um, kind of explored and and things like that, right? Um, there was a lot of stuff that was skimmed over in this first one, but that also really sets us up for, what, two, three, four more installments? So is it better to view this almost as a miniseries or would it have been better if it were billed as a TV series um, in just from a storytelling perspective? Obviously, you couldn't do the $150 million budget cinematic thing, and you probably couldn't have gotten some of the people involved, and so it wouldn't have looked the same. But do you think if you're going to be faithful to the novel and to the story that it would be better served in a sort of longer form? Or is that actually what we're getting? It's just not billed that way. I think it would have been better to get the Game of Thrones treatment, to have the super expensive, glossy, you know, uh, big budget miniseries like Game of Thrones. And then a lot of people are pointing out in the chat that there was a series of Dune yeah, uh, at some point. Sci-fi, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And people think it's pretty good. Um, but yeah, no, I absolutely think, I mean, as someone who has not read the book, so I'm not the fucking person who should be answering this question, it seems like after seeing part one of this, of the thing, that it would be better as it served as a miniseries, so. Yeah, I like I said, I, I reiterate, I I can't really speak to the efficacy of the adaptation in a miniseries versus a uh, a film diptych. Um, you know, I think if anything, I I didn't really have any issue with the pacing. It was just one of those things that, like I said, I if you take issue with that stuff, I would just blame the marketing department. I think from the start, if they had just billed this as part one of Dune, it, it probably would have not. Uh, not rankled you so, Ryan. Well, it also wouldn't have made as much money because everyone's going to go, shit, I don't want to go to part one. You know? <laughs> Give me part two, baby. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wait till part two Everyone comes out. waiting for a movie that they will 100% not understand. Okay, let's, yeah. start doing, let's start doing this. Let's start kind of like peeling back the film. Um, I, like I said earlier, I was really struck with like Tarkovsky vibes when I was watching this, the kind of slow kind of like plotting, very sort of like the mysticism that was there. And even when it wasn't there, it felt like it was always kind of looming because it was always kind of like, mm, what's going on here with this religious mysticism stuff? You know, and there's not much talk about like who these witches are and what their goal is and what they're trying to do. It's just like a lot of like really subtle hints about what they're doing. So I was thinking a lot about like Tarkovsky and like he explores mysticism a ton, obviously in his films. A lot of people are talking about Star Wars. A lot of people are talking about Lord of the Rings. What do you think? Like what are the influences that kind of like create this this film? That that, that when you see this, what were you thinking of? 
one thing I wasn't thinking of, but after talking about it with my buddy um, Adam, he was like, "Did you get a bunch of Apocalypse Now vibes from the movie?" I'm Absolutely. Like, I'm like, yeah. I personally didn't, but he thought that the the big the big fat uncle was Baron like very Harkin. much a, a Brando, uh, mm. you know, a Brando yeah. from Apocalypse Now kind of uh, character send off. And then he sent me a podcast where Denny basically admitted such. Um, so very Heart of Darkness anyway. was that Villeneuve's you definitely, point? Harkonnen definitely has some some Colonel Kurtz vibes in this one. Um, whereas in the David Lynch one, he's just like flying around. <laughs> he's like a giddy balloon man. It's um, I don't know. I think the reason that I bring up the David Lynch one as a point of comparison, obviously they're the same story. Um, but I think that the reason I maybe enjoy that one a bit more is that it it doesn't feel so serious. Like this, this movie for all of its technical accomplishments does feel very grim and kind of, I don't want to say monotone because that sounds pejorative, but there, there's not a whole lot of like characters other than being played by, by great actors who just have a natural sort of charm. They don't necessarily jump off the page at you. And I, I wonder, uh, uh, Austin, if, if you feel the same way when you're reading the book, do the characters really grab you? Uh, yeah, they do, but that's because the characters have much more um, developed introspection. You get to learn about, like, Paul, he starts to develop these like powers where he can see past, present, and future and stuff like that, and you start to learn about this responsibility that he's bearing, but also how, like, um, th- he's like this messiah figure, that right, that that is uh, has been anticipated, and so you start to learn more about the mythology and then his own kind of existential struggles with bearing the weight of of that responsibility. It's kind of like a messiah. Um, people in the chat are talking about like Anakin, you know, balancing the force kind of thing. I mean, it's a very familiar tale, right? It's the the single person that is going to come and deliver us, right? The, 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 the person that's going to deliver the people from their suffering, their exploitation, their oppression, whatever. And then how does a young person deal with the weight of that responsibility? You get a lot more of that in the novel then I think we are allowed to really linger over even in a two and a half hour film. And with regards to this film's influences, I I don't think we can disregard the fact that this is based on a novel that influenced a bunch of movies that maybe influenced Denis Villeneuve. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those, I I remember watching (laughs) um, the John Carter movie, the Disney movie from forever ago that bombed. And watching it was like, oh, this movie feels like a ripoff of all the movies that were ripping off of the uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs stories on which this movie is based. It's just one of those things where because like, you know, people are constantly synthesizing their inspiration and, and creating from a shared well of, of uh, pop culture and, and literature and movies and what have you. Um, this movie is like... it. It, it it does. I think I think Denis Villeneuve is a great filmmaker. I think he's he has a a really interesting vision regarding this. But I understand why people are saying like, oh, it feels like Star Wars or it feels like Lord of the Rings. I I mean, these books were undoubtedly influenced by Lord of the Rings, and and then yeah. Star Wars was undoubtedly influenced by this book. Like, it's so difficult to to you know disconnect where the the creative chain is i was just thinking yeah no that's what i I was thinking star wars i was thinking 
something like Tremors, like clearly the Shai Halud. Also, there's a great, <laughs> great, great hardcore band called Shai Halud um, that you could check out. Um, uh, I was thinking about even something like um, The Matrix, where like there's this battle of the machines, even stuff like Terminator, right? Like there's this battle of the machines, and that's what happens in the novels, which we don't get a lot of in the film, right? But the novel has this 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 war between like humans and robots, and then the the humans win, and so they outlaw. A lot of people online were like, "Why are there no computers in this?" And some people are like, "Because it was written in." 1965. That's actually not the real answer. The real answer is that it's actually in it's in the story that any sort of the machine people are that the mimics, computers because that, the machines are too dangerous. That's yeah. right. And any machine that mimics human consciousness was outlawed. So that's the real reason. That's actually in the universe, right? So that's actually that's written. crazy. I was about to bring that up too. Yeah. yeah. All right. So that's the reason. Well, that's why, good to know. Yeah, that's the reason why it's kind of like a stripped down technological world. Um, so I'm thinking about like you know all these films: Matrix, Tremors, Star Wars, fucking um, how many other like obviously the original dune how many fucking body horror films were then inspired i'm like, thinking like, Baywatch because there's so much sand in it too <laughs> like in this a whole bunch of hunks that's yeah. right there's hunks walking around so there's so much right and it is hard to find that kind of the creative causality right yeah, absolutely but i don't yeah. I, I i don't think that's a, a negative you know all, everyone's ideas come from somewhere like we're we're all just iterating and synthesizing our influences and and for what it's worth, like I said, I, I think uh, Villeneuve does a great job with this film. Uh, he clearly has a, a sense of what he is trying to accomplish. He has a clear vision. And uh, once again, I don't want to take anything away from folks who enjoy this, because for me, if I if I ever want to, you know, visit Arrakis again, I I can watch the David Lynch one and fans of this movie can watch this one. I, I don't see why uh, <laughs> everyone can't be happy about that. Well, this is the great thing. I think a lot of people... It, it, we live in a world where we don't deal oftentimes very well with oppositions, like opposing viewpoints, right? Um, and I don't want to talk about like fucking political stuff that like requires more serious uh, engagement. I'm talking about like artistic preference, right? And we don't do well because I think we live in a world that it feeds us perpetual reinforcement over the things that we're already biased towards. And so we get trained to be kind of trapped in this world of positivity, that it's all got to be yes, 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 yes all the time. And so when we encounter a no, it's like, well, fuck you, that's a personal attack on me, rather than what I think there's a wonderful way to be like, hey, look, I actually don't love this film, but I can sit there and I can sit with somebody and I can listen to their experience of this film and I can be like, I see that and I think that's super interesting that you think that. What if? And then I can take that idea, even though it's not my idea, and I can run with that idea and I can work with that idea and I can see how their idea that is literally opposed to my idea might have some sort of productive value for how I see the film or the piece of art or cinema more broadly or the social landscape and this is what's called like dialectical reasoning and i would really kind <laughs> i thought of, you were going to say this is what's called having a pleasant conversation this is what's called having a pleasant conversation <laughs> just breaking yeah. down basic like courtesy <laughs> but honestly so this is one of those interesting things because i my uh, before i was we went into the record this i was like you know what i'm not super excited to talk about this film because i'm not super excited about the film but then i started to get excited about the themes of the film and the conversation that i knew we would have about the film and I knew that that would change me somehow and after this talk I might now go revisit the film and it might mean something totally different yeah. for me you know but since since you mentioned that since we're all kind of you know lukewarm on the film as a film I mean let's get into those themes like you you said that you didn't want to dive too much into political stuff and I know that that can bog down some of the discussions on the show but like 
this this book is explicitly anti-imperialist. Um, you know, I appreciate that aspect of it. There well, are some spice folks who is say oil. it's like spice Absolutely. is an analog yeah. for oil. Uh, I'm, uh, and Iraq is oh. Iraq. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's the it's, and, yeah. And the most interesting thing for me actually is there's a eugenics line. Uh, a kind of conceptual through line in the novels that doesn't really get sort of highlighted so much here in the film, but it's about this idea of trying to create like a superhuman race of people or that people are all affected a particular way in relation to the material resource of spice, which is very much about like the hegemony of global capitalism or the hegemony of like um, a singular world system. So there's a lot of that stuff in there as well. I'm I'm also curious because I do think that Denis Villeneuve, who is uh, a very, in my opinion, a socially conscious filmmaker, I think a, a lot of his movies position him as like an extremely political filmmaker in, in the sort of post 9-11 mode. Like Sicario is obviously uh, uh, an explicit indictment of, of U.S. foreign policy. Prisoners okay. is all about like the inefficacy of, of torture or enhanced interrogation. Uh, whatever ghouls call that, like enemy is about how inflicting trauma on others and uh, inevitably boomerangs on the uh, the oppressor. Um, and and this and movie might be the best film on linguistics that I've ever seen. In oh, my certainly. Life. And uh, there's also a great there's a great moment in Arrival that I think um, you know sums it up so well, which is uh, where they're talking about how uh, I think the 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 spaceship that landed in China the interpreters there are trying to talk to the aliens by using Mahjong. And um, I think Amy Adams at one point says like, oh, if you if you teach someone that language is about competition, which is essentially what they're doing, then you're essentially priming the pump for them to compete. And like there is there there is a, a sense of like how these things get lost in translation. Um, but this movie, especially, I, th- I think he has an, an eye towards maybe some of the touchier aspects of the material. People have talked about how, you know, this movie is kind of like a white savior uh, movie in, in the vein of like an avatar or dances with wolves. But I, I'm not sure, having not read the book, but it seems like he is engaging with that critique in this movie by like showing how emotionally vacant all of these people are. Like they're all colonizers. They're all going to destroy this planet in in one way or another. They're just fighting over the right to destroy the planet with each other. And like, you know, we even talked about uh, uh, Baron Harkonnen being depicted as kind of a Colonel Kurtz character in this. There's there's a, a scene in which he is like literally bathing in oil <laughs> where yeah, yeah, he's yeah. like emerging yeah, yeah, from yeah. it. So, you know, I just I just wanted to touch on some of that stuff really quickly because I know that uh, our fans who listen to this show a lot of the time, not necessarily for us to say like thumbs up, thumbs down on a movie, but they do want us to talk about some of those headier themes or what uh, what the filmmakers are playing with subtextually. Trey in the chat says Herbert was an old school conservative pro-environmentalism and anti-communist. Did you get that vibe, Raymond, from the final product? Um, from this movie, I mean, I haven't read the book, so something may have been lost in translation. Um, I know that watching this, there there definitely seems to be uh, an anti-imperialist message. Um, as far as the like corporate structure of the or the uh, the the political structure of House Atreides versus House Harkonnen, like they both seem like fascist colonizers to me. Um, so it's, mm-hmm. it would be tough for me to really, uh, uh, to say how I felt about like, you know, I, I don't think they ever get into like, uh, 
their uh, the structure of their democracy. Like I'm pretty sure they're they're just like monarchies, aren't they? I'm you know. It's it's like it's kind of like medieval like medieval formulated. Yeah, um, they're they're treating Arrakis as like a fiefdom. I think doesn't doesn't yeah. uh, Oscar Isaac even say that at one point that like you've this, this is my fief and blah blah blah, or am I thinking of a different thing that I watched recently? I can't remember. Uh, maybe <laughs> I may be mistaken. I may be mistaken on that. I might have my wires crossed <laughs> with a, a a different book that I was reading or something. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, I mean it's definitely. Um, this version definitely leans into maybe more of a colonialist sentiment, which isn't something that we probably would have had in 1965. You know, post-colonial, anti-colonial theories really come at the end of the 1960s, really after 68, so 69, 70, that's when that really starts to become more of a thing. Not that people didn't have anti-colonialist or post-colonialist ideas, but it wasn't really in the forefront, but definitely imperialist, which is a little bit different, maybe, right? But this is in the shadow of World War II and World War I. Um, the world is kind of changing. It's also at the height of the Cold War. You've got like these two superpowers, right? And then the world was divided up in most people's minds between first world, second world, and then third world, right? Nations. So what you have here is this kind of, um, I could see how it would be anti-communist in the sense of anti-Soviet style communism at the time. Um, And also at the same time, sort of um, a, a critique, if you will, a sort of like naturalist, environmentalist critique of the advancement of industrialization. So there's kind of like almost a primitivism that you get in this, which is this idea that uh, the the First Nations people or the native peoples, the uh, indigenous peoples of, uh, of Arrakis, they are... Um, they are the kind of uh, oppressed, exploited, uh, peripheralized, marginalized peoples. Um, and then you get this kind of messiah figure who, one, you know, was kind of promised in their lore, in their mythology, um, but who could be like the white savior that kind of comes in. And he has to deal with that, right? Has to deal with, one, the responsibility of that. What does that mean? But also becoming kind of part of these peoples, learning from them. Um, remember, at first, you know, all we see right now is that Paul is allergic to spice, Right, like he has these problems in this film, but as the story moves on, he learns to um, adapt to it, and his powers grow as the story kind of unfolds a little bit more. So I think it's much more about like the tension of kind of moving through those spaces, um, rather than it's very difficult to kind of take a 2021 mindset and kind of like reread that back into 1965. It's uh, it's it's a little bit difficult, and then of course the the, the Villeneuve version is going to be updated based on contemporary sensibilities. Yeah, certainly. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. What <laughs> What else do you, what else is on the outline? <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is just one of those things where I feel like, I feel like we're letting down, or at least I feel like I'm letting down the audience a little bit, you know, I, I, I don't want folks to think that How dare you not read a 1,500-page novel? <laughs> I should have, really. Um, I read fucking Ready Player One to get uh, prepared for that <laughs> episode. That was one of the worst books I've ever read. Um, <laughs> but this, this, uh, like I said, I, I, I would be interested in reading it um, and uh, definitely be able to engage with those, uh, the, those critiques a little bit more, uh, having done so. But just engaging with the film as a film i i still think he's uh he's really thoughtful uh, about his thematic deployment of uh the the text that frank herbert uh gave him and i wouldn't be surprised at all considering how many movies he made before this that are like explicitly dealing with similar themes uh like i mentioned before 
I wouldn't be surprised if this book was just a, a seminal text for him growing up. In addition to being, you know, just one of his favorite books and a dream project of his to adapt, it it really seems like it maybe molded his sense of consciousness as a uh, as a person as well as a filmmaker. One thing I do want to say, so DK in the chat uh, a little while ago said that uh, Villeneuve, even, you know, like this kind of goes back to the Apocalypse Now thing, you know, explicitly talked about this idea of going further, further into the wilderness. There's something, and I know this is, it might seem like a hobby horse and it might seem like I'm forcing it, but I think we need to really see and think about like how important the Western mythology, and I mean like not Western as in global, but I mean as like cowboys, you know, firing guns and ranching and, you know, uh, that type of Western, that that type of myth is so important in the American psyche, you know, westward expansion, um, just this like uh, manifest destiny, this this open landscape that is that is uh, fulfilled or it's just filled with um, possibilities and, and opportunities and things like that is so kind of ingrained in the psyche that I see a lot of that even in Dune and in the Dune story. And you also get a lot of that in something like I even think in Apocalypse Now, where you get this idea that there's this this radical bifurcation between civilization and technology and structures and societal formations and the wilderness and the wild now that can that can that can express itself in a couple of different ways sometimes you know the wild can be viewed as bad right as dangerous as threatening right and then therefore the people of the wild the indigenous, the First Nations peoples, whatever, they can be kind of uh, demonized because of that. Or it can take the form like it often does in the American Western myth, where that does happen as well. But it's also that uh, the man, like let's think about a film like The Searchers or Shane, you know, kind of classical Westerns. You have the man of violence that comes out of the wilderness, that comes in to build or rebuild society, but doesn't belong because they've learned violence. They've learned those ways that aren't accepted in, in this kind of quote-unquote civilized world. And that's kind of what you get with Paul here, but we're left to it at the end of the film where Paul... Everything that he was raised with, right? Um, his house, you know, um, this this kind of like political allegiance that he believed he was a part of, right? All of that is taken from him, and now he's forced to go out into the wilderness. And now the question is, is does he then become the quote-unquote cowboy? Does he become the gunslinger? Does he become the man of violence, which you kind of see at the end when he kills the guy? He doesn't want to kill him. Remember, he's doing the practice on him, and he says, do you yield? And they're like, you can't do that. It's death is the only way here, right? So he kills him. Does, does he then change, and he can't ever go back to the kind of person he was before? Is this kind of something that's going on here? I, I definitely think that killing someone is i mean they they do make a big deal about that in this movie uh you know in in reality as well i i imagine that uh taking someone else's life is something that uh changes you irrevocably and um you know the his uh what's what's her name queen queen uh jessica she done, there's like a handful of folks with just normal ass names and, that's, and those are mm-hmm. Paul yeah, and Jessica know, but and Duncan, I've got no problem D- remembering Idaho. like yeah Baron Josh. Harkonnen or what have you but then I've got to be like is it Jennifer or Jessica um you know she they cut away to her and she says oh he's never killed a person like this is as Josh Brolin says to him you know you you fight when uh necessity makes you fight and he's he is put in a uh, a point of necessity. But I, I do think that you bring up something interesting with regards to Western mythology. Um, you know, you you talk about, uh, we, we've talked about on the show before how so many Westerns present indigenous folks as uh, an obstacle to be overcome rather than like human human beings who are being slaughtered and who are having 
their rights and their land taken from them. Um, in this one, uh, I can't speak to the book once again, but I do at least appreciate that it, the only people who are, are portrayed in, a, a somewhat positive light are the, the Fremen or the free men, Frank Herbert. Um, you know, like they, those characters clearly are the ones who are like, if not at peace with nature, they have like, they've learned to adapt. They, they've learned to adapt to their world rather than attempting to break the world to their will. Um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sure that that is the, that's certainly what the, uh, they get into with, with Paul kind of assimilating with them and, and adopting their ways. And in the David Lynch one, once again, haven't read the book, but I imagine that uh, we've talked a little bit about how Zendaya is immensely underused in this film. I imagine the the second film, she's a co-lead and it's largely about her relationship with him as, uh, as he learns to accept this planet and its culture and uh, appreciate it and, you know, adopt it. Mm. Ryan? Yeah. Chime in here, brother. What are some thoughts on this? You kind of gave it a one or, one and a half stars, was it? What else, what else are you thinking? Yeah, what else are you thinking here? Um, well, I, I, you know, talking about, like, uh, the indigenous aspect and stuff and how, it, you know, because I don't know what happens in part two. That's going to be a surprise to me. But it is interesting how he's straight up, like, do we believe that Paul believes that he's actually the Messiah or is he just saying that to exploit these people, the Freeman, and say, oh, they have this Messiah story and I kind of fit right in with that. You know, I should use that to get power. Um, I mean, to me, that that's kind of a very interesting, juicy aspect of the story of, of, of what's going on in his mind and what is going to happen to him, you know. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, somebody that's all, somebody said that's earlier. All I was somebody asked earlier in the chat, or said earlier in the chat, there was like it's a messiah who like doesn't like doesn't want to be or rejects that that it's a messiah. And I would actually argue that that's cool. like that's the only position that is rational to be in, unless you're a megalomaniac. Like any sort of messianic person can never accept that position of power, right? Um, I would even argue that the quintessential messiah figure um, from from Christian and um, from monotheistic theology, let's say, because it's also in Islam as well and Judaism, right? That I would even argue that Jesus was a very unwitting messianic figure, and it's actually his followers that kind of and a reluctant him. figure at times, a reluctant yeah. figure, very much so. Um, I think that any sort of messianic figure must kind of, in order to be a messianic figure, wrestle with that existential weight. Wrestle with that responsibility. Like, how could you fucking... What are you talking about? How could I have this role that is meant to do this thing? And this is one of the really important themes throughout the series that, unfortunately, I haven't read to the end, but um, I've read lots of synopses and listened to lots of people talk about it, and it sounds really interesting, but that Paul really has to struggle with, even when his powers start to become greater and greater and greater, and he does get this ability to see past, present, and future all the time, he still isn't able to overcome. Just because you, and this is one of those great things about if you have omniscience, do you have omnipotence as well? Well, Paul does not have omnipotence, right? Um, He might be able to see past, present, and future, but does he have the capacity to stop these bad things? Does he have the capacity to intervene with wisdom 
or um, with prudence. Not always. And I think every messianic figure will always struggle with that. Well, and it's crazy because usually in a messianic prophet-like figure, it's just kind of this divine thing that happens. But, you know, you were talking about eugenics earlier, and and it straight up seems like his mom is breeding him like a dog to become the messiah. I mean, that was the plan initially. Right. And, And I mean, that's kind of an interesting thing. It's like, oh, we can just literally breed this Jesus figure out of out of us. Correct me if I'm wrong, Austin, but what they talk about how she was supposed to deliver a daughter, and that that daughter was supposed to that daughter was supposed to be coupled with a Harkonnen, right? And so that it, that was yeah, yeah, yeah. supposed no, so, to like unite their families. Exactly, and it has to do sure. with these witches that um, I can't remember what they're called right now off the top of my head, but that have existed. Been the Jesuit. Thank you. That have existed forever, and they're the ones who are crafting, if you will, um, the kind of superhuman that is supposed to come or the superhuman. Sure. The future of the species. Essentially. That's right. Um, I, I do know that I'm pretty sure that, um, that Denis Villeneuve said that he, he wants to do a trilogy. He wants to do Dune, Dune one, Dune part two. And then he wants to adapt the second book, Dune Messiah as like a closed trilogy. So, I mean, I I would guess he has a lot of thoughts on uh, on, on the shape that that Paul's journey takes uh, beyond this book, even. So uh, I don't know. Uh, four or five years from now, when uh, when the third movie is coming out, if we're still all doing this together, I'll be sure to read the first two books before we get on uh, on a call again. I mean, what's the best Star Wars? It's number two, right? So yeah, let's, let's... Uh, the, the attack of the clones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's pump the brakes a little bit. Maybe number two will be you know the Empire Strikes Back. And what's the best? What's the best Lord of the Rings? For me, it's number two and number three. So like you know, let's let's the let, animated one. Let's Ralph Bakshi baby. Let's yeah, let this huge IP percolate a little bit. Um. So yeah, okay, there's so much that we can explore. There are so many friggin' themes and concepts and ideas. Um, We could talk about the filmmaking, all kinds of stuff, but we got to wrap up the discussion here. Let's just do this, though. Because it's such a big... Uh, a big topic and it's so heated and so much in the kind of forefront of people's consciousness. Let's just do like a last thing. Like, Ryan, what is your biggest takeaway from this film? What is your... Raymond... Yeah. I I want Raymond to go first. Okay, Raymond, you go first. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) So I can Um, think about my answer. (laughs) No, I know my answer uh, immediately. My biggest takeaway from this is I'm I'm happy that uh, after Blade Runner 2049 didn't do so hot at the box office, uh, I'm, I'm happy that a great filmmaker got another bite at the apple and it seems like he's going to get quite a few more after the success of this film. And uh, in addition to making a sequel or sequels to this, I hope that enables him to make um, the, the smaller, but still very personal films of his that I've, uh, I've really enjoyed uh, up to this point. So uh, my big takeaway is I'm, I'm excited to see what uh, Denis Villeneuve does next. All right. Right. Mine is, I want more Sandworm, Denny. If you're listening to this, give me half of the movie as Sandworm, told from his perspective, please. We'll always have Beetlejuice. <laughs> um, also, yeah, like, uh, the uh, there's several movies that have the trope of, of like, oh, you... I'm 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 seeing I'm seeing visions, right? You know, and then like later on, you see what the visions are made uh, uh, and stuff. I just think that that's a hard uh, uh, thing to pull off, and they don't do it very well in this movie, and especially, and they fucked up by baiting and switching, baiting and switching every everybody with Zendaya's uh, 
part in this movie. She's in it for like uh, two minutes of screen time in a two and a half hour long movie. She's on the posters and she's just the person that is, you know, this is a very nitpicky thing. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, because I really have no other big thoughts. I've kind of expressed them all here. I'm sorry, everyone, that I've uh, been shitting on your favorite movie the, for an hour, but I can't help myself. Yeah, I think that it was a home run swing, like I said, and it uh, just got caught at the warning tracks. But you know what? Give me a home run swing every single freaking time. If more movies come out that are like this that I don't think work perfectly well, but that are in that two and a half to three star range, but I can't stop mm-hmm. talking about it or people are talking about it or they've done something beautiful technically, give us that until I freaking die and then into the next generations and next generations, please. And so, I, would, I would say the same thing. Uh, another movie that I wasn't crazy about, Tenet, I still love seeing filmmakers yeah. get to take big risks. And yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, two, two thumbs up for uh, pure cinema, if nothing else. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Fuck yes. And, g- and give us more trimmers. Whoever owns the rights <laughs> yeah, to trimmers. Yeah, and also I, feel like, give us I feel like we're going to have to do trimmers. Trimmers part five and six and yeah. seven. For <laughs> please. Right, right off of the success of Dune, please. Let's, yeah, let's wrap up the Dune chat and let's real quick, let's get into a voicemail just so that we can talk a little bit about Squid Game because everybody was writing to us and calling us about Squid Game. Remember, you can call us and leave a voicemail at 1-213-534-8807. That's 1-213-534-8807. And leave us a voicemail. If you can, keep them quick. Uh, 30 seconds or less so that we can make sure we address them. Um, but if you do have some longer thoughts, of course, you can also email us. Movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co. Let's run that voicemail. Hello, I just listened to the Squid Game episode, and I'm wondering um, if you guys think that there's any thematic significance to them being children's games other, other than just like the aesthetic aspect of like, oh, this is cool and freaky. And also, um, I've been thinking that this show would be easily adaptable to make an American season in which the squid, like in which the games take place in America with an all-American cast and crew. And I was wondering if you guys think that's a possibility in the future of the show. Thank you. All right, so for those of you who are watching the live stream, you'll see that Ryan removed his earphones right now. And that's because... No, Ryan removed his earphones because... Because he doesn't want spoilers. So we're going to real quick... I haven't seen Squid Game yet, and everyone, I can't wait to see it. I don't want it spoiled for me. So okay, sorry. So, so we just listened to the voicemail, so we're going we're gonna to answer the voicemail here. I'm going to tap my earphones when you can put your earphones back on, Ryan. So take your earphones Thank off. Thank you. Okay. All right. So, Raymond, what do you think? Uh, what's the significance of them being children's games, and do you think there can be an American adaptation? Um, I think there is something interesting going on with the, the fact that they're children's games. On one hand, it's it's very easy to entice people into the fold that way and and get them overconfident about their abilities in it. And yeah. it's a way of... Uh, it, we got an email from a listener as well. I'm sorry uh, it, we didn't have time to read it. And I'm sorry I don't have their name on hand. But they talked about how it's this sort of infantilizing aspect of uh, of the culture that... You know, it's they're stopping just short of popping a pacifier in their mouths when they start dying on the field. Yeah. Um, as far as an American remake is concerned, I could see it going t- one of two ways. This this show was so incredibly successful, you could see them wanting to greenlight an American remake tomorrow. But on the other hand, the show was so incredibly successful, it's like, well, we've already tapped that audience. 
Um, I, I, I think the reason that this show is connecting with so many folks globally is because it has universal themes, capitalism, exploitation, um, and, uh, rich, yeah, poor I, inequality. Yeah, absolutely. For, and, uh, the degree to which it's connected with American audiences, I, I think we, we can relate to that stuff here, obviously. So I, I think as is so often the case, an American remake would be an essential, but if it can, uh, help this show find an even bigger audience yeah why not yeah i um i don't think that there will be an uh, he's, he's checking he's not his listening. emails now yeah, he's I know. Not even... come on oh yeah um i'm just gonna say that, real quick ryan i'm just gonna say i don't think there will be an american remake but i do think it's gonna inspire a lot of american uh ripoffs right you know kind of like cube inspired like I mean, kajillion other cube like things i think battle there's gonna be Royale, like battle hunger Royale games game shows. Cube. Yeah, 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 yeah you know yeah. all this stuff yeah. is already in the ether so who knows yeah it's just gonna be more of that stuff okay now ryan what are your anticipations for squid game what have you heard about this why are you why are you protecting your ears so um stridently here like what is what's going on well, look, all I know, the only thing I know is that everyone on Earth seems to love it <laughs> and that it's very it's it's very much like Battle Royale or one of those you got to kill everyone to the last person kind of thing. And as someone who is literally wearing a Battle Royale t-shirt oh, that's and wrong, the biggest yeah. fan in the world of stuff like that, I love I love any Battle Royale. We'll just call it the Battle Royale genre. I love the whole Battle Royale genre, including Hunger do you, Games. Do you I, like I the Royal well, Rumble? I don't love Hunger Games, but I think, like it's, I think it's fun enough. The, the Royal Rumble as well, like in WWF back in the day? Was that your... That was my thing. Oh, yeah. The, 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 the conceit of one man only will survive. <laughs> you know, that's why I, 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 I fucking love Survivor, which I'm literally going to be watching tonight. <laughs> you know, it's I, also, I, also why you love Highlander, you were telling me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there can only be one. I mean, I just think it's it's always fun, you know. That's why I like sports, you know. There can only be one person that wins the Super Bowl. Uh, uh, it's just a fun, dramatic story. That it, it's uh, what did somebody say? It's it's, it's uh, sports is like uh, unscripted drama or something like that. Anyway, and and I know Squid Game Squid Game is scripted, but. Just uh, there can be only one is a fun story. Or as that famous bumper sticker that I used to see in Orange County all the time used to say, "He who dies with the most toys wins." Um, all right. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> speaking of infantilizing people. <laughs> all right. Um, as I said, if you want to call, you can call us with your questions, your thoughts about Dune, Squid Game, anything from our back catalog. Please do at one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. Of course, you can email us movies at wisecrack.co. We're so backlogged with so many things that people have um, written to us or called in about that we're actually going to be doing um, just an entire mailbag episode at some point in the near future here. So don't feel oh, cool. like. Yeah, so don't feel like if we're not getting to your your question that we won't tackle it. We will. We're just gonna fucking sit down and we're gonna address everything um, that you're that you're bringing to us. So one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven. Or movies at wisecrack.co. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter, smtm underscore pod. We've also got Culture Binge, and we've got Squanch, and we've got all of our other podcasts on the Wisecrack Network that you got to go check out. I think that's pretty much it. Um, oh, actually, Patreon. Make sure to go to patreon.com slash and check us out if you want access to bonus content. Raymond and I did a topic uh, a few weeks ago where we did an extended chat about Apocalypse Now, and we're actually just about to record another one about the philosophy of acting. We're going to be talking about acting, what's good acting, what's bad acting, what inspires actors, etc., etc. So we're going to record that very soon here. All right. 
That's patreon.com slash wisecrack. Let's get out of here. Where can people find you on the internet, Raymond? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at Crematoria, and this week I have something to plug as well. Uh, I joined our friends over on When Cinephiles Attack uh, to talk about Mike Flanagan's Midnight Mass on Netflix, uh, and that podcast just dropped today. So I wasn't on the Squid Game episode, but if you want to hear me talk about a, uh, a different Netflix miniseries, we had a really great conversation about Midnight Mass. So uh, check out When Cinephiles Attack in the podcatcher of your choice. Everybody has said that Midnight Mass is like theological horror, and it is absolutely something I need to see. So don't say anything about it. I'm not going to yeah, listen to the I podcast. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Because I don't want a spoiler, but I have to see that because everyone tells me it's amazing. All right, Ryan. Uh, yeah, you can find me at Ryan's Game Show on Twitter and Ryan Shorts on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and all that shit. And I uh, release comedy videos there. I'm teaching, I'm, I'm about to uh, record the end of a video about how to make homemade guacamole, which should be very interesting, obviously. And I recorded, my last one was a song about the, the day Friday, a la Rebecca Black. Before that, you learned a beautiful piece on piano there as well. Oh, yeah, with Jason D. Williams, uh, the illegitimate ch- child of uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. Exactly how he wants to be introduced. <laughs> Amazing. And if you want, you can find me. My name's Austin Hayden. You can find me on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden, Insta, AUS underscore H-A-Y. Let's get out of here, Ryan. Send us out, brother. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. This has been Show Me the Meeting. Let's do some spice!